Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. We hope all our American listeners enjoyed their 4th of July, and welcome back to the pod. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in April of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Ravi Batra. Dr. Batra attained his bachelor's degree from Punjab University, his master's from the Delhi School of Economics, and his PhD from Southern Illinois University, all in economics, of course. He is currently an economics professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Dr. Batra is the author of dozens of published articles and journals such as the American Economic Review, the Journal of Political Economy, the Journal of Economic Theory, and many more. He is the author of seven books, five of which are New York Times bestsellers. His most prominent and the focus of our discussion today is End Unemployment Now. We were lucky enough to join Dr. Batra in discussing the growth of post-World War II inequality, how the accumulation of debt affects socioeconomic classes differently, and how antitrust can help working-class families. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Dr. Bashra, thank you for joining us here on Smart Talk. Uh, it's a real pleasure for me because I've been a fan of yours for at least 15 or 20 years, and I want the audience to know that you were one of the first economists to actually pinpoint and, and, and dissect the problems that were emerging in the American economy. And uh, you are a great American patriot for pointing out all of these issues over so many years. So I, I want everyone to know that. Your work speaks for itself. And we're going to talk about a summary of your work, which is in, encompassed in, in, in a new book that hasn't been released yet, called End, Un, End Unemployment Now by uh, Dr. Batra. Uh, I have read it, and I think it is just an outstanding uh, compilation and, 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 and uh, summary of your work. Very seldom can you see a book that encompasses not only the theory, but the recipes and the, and the, and the cure for the problems that ail, ail us. I want to give a framework to your work that goes back to World War II, the end of World War II, where essentially the United States set up the Bretton Woods uh, system, dollar, the dollar being the key currency. And I believe the American policymakers decided that there would be three centers of capitalism, you know, Germany, Asia, China, but then Japan, and then the United States, and that this supposedly would have ended autarky or countries developing against each other by enclosing their borders and, uh, and opening up free trade, which they considered to be uh, the problem of, uh, of the world. This is not proven to be the case, and your work kind of demonstrates that. But uh, I wanted to start off with that and, and by saying the golden period from 1945 to 1970 the world came out of uh, uh, the, the destruction of World War II. The United States was preeminent. Its manufacturing was preeminent. Uh, unions were strong. It was, a, it was a golden period. And then it went wrong. And of course, uh, how it happened and why it happened is the, 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 the important thing that we're going to discuss here. Now, you've, you've kind of pinpointed that the 
tax cuts of the Reagan uh, administration were kind of the key to uh, the change of the, uh, of the uh, paradigm that the Americans were, were, were following. Your comments on that, and why did it take to the 1980s, and why did American policymakers decide that they have to, had to make a shift here? And uh, your comments on that. I'm glad that you're starting uh, off from the Second World War on. And uh, the, the U.S. economy was in a great shape at that time. The main reason was that uh, while we had uh, very large firms, we had oligopolies and giant firms at that time, but we also had powerful unions. So we did not have free markets, but the power of uh, oligopolies was counterbalanced by the power of unions. So the result was that whenever productivity went up, real wages also went up uh, in the same proportion or, or pretty close to that. So <clears throat> in my mind, these two are the main variables that determine the strength or the prosperity of an economy. See, economics is simply supply and demand. As, as long as we remember that, it is very easy to understand almost every area of economics. Now, the main source of supply is labor productivity, and the main source of demand are real wages. So, <clears throat> labor productivity keeps rising, rising because of new technology, uh, new investment, and also uh, sometimes maybe because of free trade. So, supply keeps rising, and then demand has to rise in the same proportion, otherwise, there is an imbalance between supply and demand, and that imbalance would cause a lot of problems. There could be layoffs, there will be a lot of poverty if, if real wages don't rise. But in the, from 1945 to about 1970, real wages were, were rising as fast as uh, productivity, and so we did not have much of a problem. And people say, you know, we had very high uh, taxes at that time, income tax was extremely high, as high as, uh, if you recall, 75 to 80% on top incomes. Corporate tax was also incredible, but these things did not matter because real wages were keeping up with uh, productivity. There was a balance between supply and demand and the- why, why did they do that? Why did they feel the need to do that? Or did they understand the repercussions of doing that? Well, they did that uh, for mainly because I mean, the Reagan tax cuts principally were, the, were because Reagan himself was sick of paying very high taxes. Uh, it's one, it, it was all right for him if he was making a lot of money through the system, but he didn't want to pay the kind of tax rate, taxes that he was paying tax rates that he faced, and so he himself didn't, didn't like the system. And then convinced everybody else to that supply-side economics, well, tax cuts are great for the economy. Okay, but if I looked at a, from, a, from an empire point of view, if I, did, I looked at this not from an American point of view, but from a financial point of view, and I said, said to myself, well, I don't mind 
changing the tax rate, the marginal, lowering the marginal tax rate at the upper end, and loading the taxes on the lower end, knowing that I'm going to cause the very problem that you discuss, which is the, the, the divergence between productivity and wages. And not only that, but I'm willing to outsource. I see rising Japan and Germany. I want them to be strong. I want a bulwark against communism. If I have to do this and allow them to build up and export into the United States, allow, allow kind of an unrestricted free trade, I'm okay with the divergence in American labor. In effect, I'm going to sacrifice American labor to consolidate a world empire, knowingly, knowing that this is going to happen. See, you need to export a lot of goods only when there is not enough domestic demand. Otherwise, if there is plenty of domestic demand, you don't need to rely so much on foreign trade. And so the need for export or export surplus arises only when wages don't keep up with productivity. Because if supply rises faster than demand, then the one choice you have is to send the extra production abroad. But if your, if your wages are keeping up with productivity, in fact, I recall the case of Japan, uh, their real wages rose, rose very fast, as fast as productivity, mostly because of powerful unions. And until about 1965, they did not have much of a trade surplus. And they didn't need it because their domestic market was growing very fast. And, and uh, then there was this oil shock in the 1970s, and Japan faced a huge uh, uh, oil bill from abroad. That's when they decided that we, they needed to export as much as to pay for all these oil imports. So their export surplus or trade surplus started to rise in the 1970s. And until then, they, had, they really did not rely much on foreign trade. Now, opening up your markets is one thing, but uh, tolerating a huge trade deficit is something else. Now, free trade is fine as long as First of all, it is among nations with similar wages. And secondly, there is balanced trade. But we haven't had that since 1981. And we have had the worst of uh, many worlds. Government spending a lot of money and the Federal Reserve bringing interest rates down in order to boost uh, spending artificially through borrowing. So we did not need all that if your wages keep rising. You don't need an export surplus then, and you don't need uh, budget deficits uh, and so on. So saying that it's because we needed Japan to export more is not really right. It's only that the president wanted tax cuts because he was sick of paying very high taxes. And by the way, there were really no real tax cuts because they cut the income tax rates on one side and raised all other taxes on the other side, like payroll tax, social security tax, gasoline tax, excise tax, all of the taxes went up. So, but still the budget deficit was horrendous. And the reason was rising productivity and wages not keeping up with that. All right, but they, they did, you could argue that they understood that raising the taxes on lower income people and cutting in the marginal uh, higher income people would, would, would basically kill purchasing power at the, at, at the low end. And, and if they had a deficit spend to make up for it, 
those deficits would create profits at the high end. So it was a virtual cycle for upper-ended people for this to occur, even if it was decimating uh, American productivity. So if you look at it from a, a conspiratorial point of view, which I hate particularly doing, but if I'm a, I'm a banker and finance guy in America, and I want a global world, and I'm willing to allow uh, productivity in America to outrace uh, wages, knowing that I can create money to borrow and plug the difference for a while, and if I have the deficit spend, and if I have to allow e exports coming in, I'm, laying, I'm, I'm pushing labor down more, I'm allowing uh, the rest of the world to emerge, and the American middle and working class would be a, uh, a willing victim over the 30-year period. And what's so bad about that if I'm a, I'm a New York banker? Well, that's right. Bankers made a lot of money. And, uh, and even now, they are making a huge amount of money uh, at the expense of the poor and the middle class. Uh, see, when they cut these tax rates sharply in, in 1981, and even later on, they kept cutting these tax rates. Uh, in 1986, there was even a bigger tax cut. So the budget deficit had to rise. And uh, their theory was that their theory was that when the American people, especially these companies, have a lot more money in their pockets, they would invest the money. But why would they invest the money when uh, there was not enough demand? Because demand comes from rising wages. And if uh, wages, and wages did stop rising after 1981, so there was not much of a demand. So what, ha what, what happened was that all these corporations and the wealthy individuals they got these tax cuts and loaned the money, loaned the, the, that benefit back to the government to finance the budget deficit. So they had the best of all worlds. They're getting money, they're getting money from the government and then lending it back at 10, 12% back to the government. And, and, and the, the, the so-called supply side economics and the, the people who defended these tax cuts uh, kept saying, well, this is great for the country, this is free market, this was great for the wealthy individuals, but bad, horrible for everybody else in the United States. Okay, well, they also allowed large corporations, as you've pointed out, uh, became uh, heavily deregulated. The antitrust trust provisions that were in the Sherman antitrust uh, uh, laws and so forth were ignored. Uh, mergers were allowed to go on, uh, oligopolies and monopolies were allowed to proceed at a pace, and then further controlling markets and, uh, and not allowing uh, wages to keep track with productivity. And then they could export overseas, they could outsource, they could, they could do the work that American workers would do, they were allowed to bring it back, uh, you know, tariff-free, and they're investing overseas, they're not paying tax overseas, they're bringing, the, they're bringing the work back, uh, the products back here. Americans can't really pay for them, so they have to borrow money. So they, they allow money to be created to, to close the gap, and they're making tremendous fees on that, and they're making tre tremendous fees on deficit financing, and they're consolidating a, a, a world system. If I'm uh, sitting up there with the bankers in New York, I absolutely am, am in total love with this system. Because I live in a world that's hermetically sealed. I live in New York. I live in Boston. I live in Washington. And I'm, my country is that country plus all the leading capitals around the world. And all my friends are the leading elites all around the world. 
and the rest of the world can go dark as far as I'm concerned as long as they don't figure it out and, and really complain about it. I have figured it out way in advance. Uh, in fact, uh, some people are surprised if, uh, by, my, by, by, my, my, by my logic. Uh, for instance, uh, I mean, you might recall the, the George Bush bailout of financial institutions. Uh, it was sometimes in, in 2008. He bailed a lot of people out. And at that time, the oil price had come down to about $30 per barrel. And somebody asked me, well, what's going to be the effect of this bailout? And I said, this is going to be horrible for the American economy. Bankers would make a lot of money, but your oil prices are going to go back to $100 per barrel. Everybody's shocked. He said, what has the bailout got to do with oil price? I said, well, the money will sit idle in the hands of these bankers because there's not much demand for their, their borrowing. People don't have collateral left anymore to borrow money. So money will sit in the hands of the bankers and they would then use this money to speculate in oil and your oil is going to go back to $100 a barrel. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so the, the, the theories that these people offer are simply self-serving. Uh, for instance, uh, there is this well-known theory that free trade benefits the consumer. And uh, if you don't go deep into it, yes, tariffs bring down prices, so consumer benefits. What's wrong with this idea? Well, what's wrong is this. Historically, the United States had high tariffs, uh, and then the U.S. became an industrial giant in the world. They wanted to introduced free trade, and in 1916, they introduced the 16th, sorry, 1914, they introduced the 16th Amendment to the Constitution that permitted the income tax to replace the tariff. Now, this is, free trade means replacing the tariff with the income tax. So the same consumer who, who pay, faces lower prices from the elimination of tariffs has to pay the income tax. So where is the benefit to the consumer? I don't see any benefit to the consumer at all. And in fact, the same uh, Republicans were dead set against free trade at that time because they knew they would end up paying the lot of income tax. And that's exactly what happened historically. We got goods very cheaply from the rest of the world, but our industrial base was destroyed. And today we have only 8% of our labor force working in manufacturing. The fact that all of this has occurred, there are smart politicians and smart economists that had to know the effects of all of this. And yet it was allowed to go on. And we have to come up with an answer why. Yeah, it cannot go on for a long time. And, and today we are in a world where the antitrust laws are hardly ever enforced. Uh, and mergers keep occurring. Mergers themselves cause layoffs and uh, create poverty while raising productivity at the same time. So it creates big they create big balance in, in the economy. So we have to do something. We have to get rid of this monopoly capitalism, which raises productivity but restrict, uh, but not wages. Uh, utilities could abuse their monopoly power a lot but they're not allowed to do that because their rates are set by the government, the local, the state governments. So something similar the president can do. For instance, 
this FDIC. FDIC works for the president, and the FDIC is authorized to start a bridge bank from out of bankrupt banks. But what this FDIC could do, FDIC could create its own bank, appoint its own managers, and tell them to charge only 5% interest on credit card balances because they're getting money basically free uh, from the Federal Reserve. So if they charge 5%, they would still make a lot of money. But all these credit card, card owners will have to pay only 5% instead of the current 15 to 20%. So just imagine, first of all, their poverty would, would go down sharply. Plus, it would free up so much money, it would be like a hefty tax cut for them. That's, that's clear. You described a policy to rein in finance by putting in competition. They could also, the president could also enforce the antitrust regulations and the anti-monopoly regulations if he so had the will to do so. And uh, the question is, Obama, for example, is a smart man. You, you can't really say he's not unaware of what you're saying. The question is, why can't he do it? And I want to take it aside. In your book, you describe a meeting that you had before you wrote the book with Nancy Pelosi, who was then the Speaker of the House, and she gave you an audience, and you describe all of the things that could be done to change this economy. And I think she gave you a good reception. But the question, of course, is what could she do even if she was sympathetic to this? What could she do to influence the government, which, if, which in effect is an emergent system now uh, with a certain amount of built-in momentum, with a certain amount of people feeding off uh, the, the profits from it, and the ability to implement your solutions, which are the perfect solutions? Well, I, I, I met uh, Nancy Pelosi in 2010, and uh, at that time they had declared the recession over but unemployment was extremely high, wages were still not rising, poverty was going up. So she wanted to do something special at that time. And also she was facing elections in November, so she wanted to do something very, something uh, new. And I explained to her the connection between wages and productivity and how this is the main reason why we have high unemployment. And after talking to me for a little while, she, she understood, yeah, supply and demand, everybody understands th those concepts. And she was thrilled to hear my ideas, and, uh, and she was going to call Ben Bernanke that day, the, the, the Fed chairman at that time, and she was also going to meet uh, the, the other people and was going to invite me to Washington, D.C. So she really liked these ideas. But then what happened in, in November, the elections, uh, uh, the Republicans took over the House and she lost her speakership. I have outlined about five or six simple steps they can, the president can take. The president has nothing to lose. He, uh, uh, in two years, he will be leaving office and uh, he still has, has enough time to, to have a tremendous legacy for himself. Uh, I, I admire the man. Uh, I really admire him. I voted for him. I, uh, it's not that I'm a Democrat, but I voted for him because I liked uh, his, his courage at that time. But after getting elected, uh, his, uh, his uh, choice, people who uh, advised him were the same from the Clinton era. And they, 
that was the problem. He got bad advice from them and, and reinforced monopoly capitalism. That was the problem. He reinforced it. Even now, mergers are being permitted. Recently, there was a merger between American Airline and uh, U.S. Airways. And I was wondering, what in the world? What for? Both of these are profitable companies, but they allow them to merge. And now when you go, there are hardly any seats available on airplanes. The seats are cramped. And uh, the consumer suffers, but they don't care. That's the problem. Well, Robbie, let me, let me say, you, you've outlined 10 propositions in your book that I'll absolutely guarantee, and any reasonable person would guarantee, that you could change this country around. And I'm going to read them. Uh, essentially, uh, reverse the tax cuts of 81, uh, in, enforce the antitrust laws, uh, don't allow oil industry mergers uh, to the extent that they were allowed, in fact, break up mergers of any large companies that restrain trade. Uh, check the use of out unrestricted outsourcing. Uh, don't ignore the trade deficit as being meaningless. Uh, reverse the repeal of, regu of the regulations that were repealed, like Glass and Steagall. And, uh, and just stop the bailouts and, uh, and, again, on the taxation and reverse the taxation of taxing uh, poor people and move the taxes at the higher end and things would boom. I think there's no question about that. The question, of course, is who would implement it who's in power? For, again, I'm a, I'm a banker in New York. Uh, I'm 50 years old, let's say, and I've got plenty of money and, and I don't believe I'm going to go to the next world. I believe I'm, this is it. And I've got 20 good years left. And this is a wonderful world for me in New York. This is just, this is heaven. And I understand what you're saying, Ravi. But the American people are basically uh, confused about this matter. They don't seem to be able to put it together. And I'm, I'm afraid that if I did Ravi's proposals, I don't know what the outcome would be to me personally. And since I can donate enough money to elect any politician I want, why should I change? There is no reason for me to change or do the right thing, because the right thing for me is not the right thing for the American people. And I'm not calling for a rise in taxes at all. All I'm saying is the president has the legal authority to create competition in various markets. And once you create competition, supply and demand will come to play on their own. If you have created, like for instance, suppose you ban the mergers among, uh, or, or not just ban the mergers, just enforce antitrust laws. The law is already there. Just enforce the law and don't allow mergers among profitable companies. There won't be layoffs from them. Uh, and there will be, and if I'm not even saying break them up because you can't break up, the, break up the companies without going through Congress, but you can create competition for them. You can create competition for banks for uh, companies that import medicines, for companies that deal with oil, uh, retailing, almost all areas uh, are there for which the president can, on his own authority, create competition. He does not even have to skirt the democratic process. He does not have to skirt Congress because the laws are already there. But it does require the president to have the moral coverage to do that. It does require action. It does require courage and action and stand up to the uh, banking in interests and the oil giants and so on. It does require courage. 
But uh, if the commander-in-chief would not show courage, who else would? Good point, a good point. But uh, again, uh, the world may be accidental in some respects, but not in all, all respects. The president has, the president and his party have tremendous incentive to get away from the status quo. They don't have to control the Senate. They don't control the House. They have lost these elections again and again. And the president does not seem to have much of a legacy left for him. So they have a tremendous incentive to change the status quo. Uh, status quo. And uh, what I'm saying is, suppose the president did something, just took one action, just one action that brings the credit card interest rates down to 5%. I guarantee you, that in the next election, his party will control both houses. The people are very sick of these bankers. They are paying millions of dollars in, the, in, 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 the, in compensation to the CEOs and charging the poorest people, those who have been unemployed for a while, they're charging them 15 to 30% interest rates while they're paying 0% or nearly 0% interest to the Federal Reserve. Well, let me say this. You've written the policy book of a lifetime. It's a culmination of all your work, which has been tremendous over the years. And if we sent a copy of this to President Obama, if he read this and acted on this, I agree with you. He'd be the greatest president of the last hundred years. That's right. He'll be just like He'll be like FDR. Yeah, I'm going to send him a copy of this book free. Because this is the one book I would send that man that would give him the answers if he has the courage to act upon it. I really thank you for all your praise, but I really don't deserve it. It's, uh, it's, these are the circumstances, and I have to, you have, somebody has to point it out what's the right way. Well, Ravi, you've done it and suffered you know, personally from it because you've been outspoken. Uh, you've been way ahead of your times. This is not new for you. You were, you were pointing out the trends 15 years ago. Uh, there are many people who have followed your work and have admired it. I personally am glad you wrote the culmination of your work. This is a great, this is a handbook of what to do. So thanks for being on the show. Love to have you on again. And I wish you the greatest of luck to have this book become the policy description of this country for the next five to 10 years. The American people would be happy if that were so. Thanks a lot. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.